Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Heard Online, in which we look at the thalamus and insomnia. Can you know one, you know, the or can can problems in the thalamus create insomnia? Uh, we're going to look at uh, you know some some studies, some scientific studies, in which we'll see that as usual. There's so much confusion out there, and clarifying this, I think, will be really really helpful. So, um, you know. That's that's the topic of today's episode of Heard Online, and the suggestions uh, the, for the articles that we look at come from Agnes, and we're going to look at a comment from Agnes that prompted me to ask Agnes about the the references, and um, we'll go from there. But yeah, let me share um, what Agnes said uh, just a few days ago in a comment right here on our YouTube channel. <clears throat> Five days ago, Agnes said, "Hi, Daniel. After a long time of having a good relationship with my sleep." Suddenly, I came across articles that exposed that sleep problems usually correlate with thalamus damage and some dementia in high percentage. Sometimes it can be an initial symptom. And suddenly, out of the blue, I'm starting to think again that maybe the hours that I'm sleeping do matter, that my sleep onset does matter, that my night awakenings do matter again. I was in peace with all those aspects since I was absolutely convinced that my body would somehow work it out and would put me to sleep at some point or another, and that my body would at least give me the bare minimum that it needs to keep going. I was completely sure that no changes in my sleep would mean that something was wrong with my body, but now, since I know that it can be an initial symptom of such a scary diseases, and there's physical cause behind it, I feel that my peaceful relationship with my sleep has come to an end, and I find myself scared and anxious about my sleep patterns. We will uh, conclude there. And, you know, when I first saw this uh, uh, comment from um, Agnes, I really just saw, like, the first part where it said that, you know, I came across these uh, scary, you know, articles. And I was like, maybe we can review this. And it was not until actually now that I, you know, fully read the comment in detail. And I realized this is almost becomes more of a mining the comments episode because we can't really jump into the, the articles without commenting a little bit on Agnes' situation. And I want to say firstly that I was so glad that things had been easier, there had been more peaceful sleep, no struggle, and that is a wonderful thing. And it's so nice to see that there is nothing broken within us. We can sleep very nicely, very peacefully when we're not attempting to sleep or thinking something is wrong with us, right? But of course, when we had a struggle with sleep, it can almost become this like kind of post-traumatic type a situation where something really scary happened and we're afraid of it happening again and then we read something about the thalamus and then it, like that kind of like safety mechanism in our brain awakens again and goes like maybe there's something wrong after all right and then we start looking we google thalamus we read about the thalamus and sleep and we become we become kind of confused and worried and we think maybe something is wrong with me after all and we have some struggle again very very common nothing strange or unusual and i think to share some you know, on before we start reviewing these articles on, on a kind of a coaching note, some things here is that firstly, when we have become really scared one time, of course, we can be scared again. If somebody has had a car accident and, you know, they've, you know, you know, kind of they had a fear of driving for a while and then finally they're back driving again and they've been doing well. But then they, I don't know, they see it, see another accident or they read about accidents. They can be really scared again, of course. And we don't think that's strange or unusual. That's just, you know something kind of scary happened and we can be triggered again that very 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 natural just our, our brain is kind of like on the lookout for things to keep us safe from sometimes it gets confused might sometimes you know there there is really truly nothing 
dangers happening, but once it's been confused, it can be kind of like a little confused again. So the, 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 the first thing is kind of big picture. It's very common to have this, you know, these speed bumps or this like waves of some, some, some fear after we have let go of that fear initially. Now, the other thing was the, the relationship with sleep. It can look when we're sleeping well as, okay, this is it. I've, I've, I got it. I now have a good relationship with sleep. I just got to maintain this good relationship with sleep. But in reality, if we think about someone, some random person who sleeps well, and we ask them like, what's your relationship with sleep? That person will be like, well, don't know. Like th there is no relationship with sleep in a way, you know, when we're sleeping well, it's not like we have a good relationship with sleep and we're sleeping poorly. We have a bad relationship with sleep is more that when we think we need a certain relationship with sleep and that we that it's you know that it's that it's problematic if we have a bad relationship with sleep and it's it's beneficial if we have a good relationship with sleep then we're in this kind of performance anxiety type situation we want to avoid this we want to achieve that when in reality when we approach sleep kind of like breathing that's that's really helpful because we see that there is no such thing as a bad breather or a good breather. And we don't have a good relationship with breathing or a bad relationship with breathing. It's just something that happens, uh, you know, and something that happens by itself without any struggle when we're not uh, trying to achieve a certain relationship with it. Similar thing with, with, with our thoughts. When we, when we thought like, you know, I had such a full conviction in my body's ability to sleep that that made me sleep, which actually isn't the case because sleep is effortless. So if we, if, we, if we think, oh, I have to have a conviction in my body's ability to sleep for me to sleep, then it just becomes a sleep effort. In fact, when we sleep well, it's because, you know, there's, there's no effort there. We're, we're not trying to convince ourselves that, uh, that our body can sleep or anything like that. It can be confusing when we think, oh, I used to be so convinced that my body made me sleep that I slept well. Uh, because then we think, oh, I have to recreate that. I have to convince my myself that my body can regulate my sleep so that I will sleep well. Then we're in some struggle again. But we see that it, it doesn't really matter. We can we can have full faith in our body's ability to regulate sleep or have little faith in it. It, it. You know, both of those can actually lead to a place where we're not trying to sleep. Both of them can actually lead to peaceful sleep. Uh, so it's, it's really helpful to see that peaceful sleep uh, and sleeping well. It's effortless. It doesn't require anything. It doesn't require us to be convinced that we're fine. It doesn't doesn't require us to be convinced that our brain can regularly sleep. It doesn't require anything actually. And just seeing this can be really helpful because it leads us out of that uh, place where we're trying to achieve control or achieve uh, you know uh, a mind state or anything like that. So yeah, that was <laughs> became a, a good seven minutes of kind of like mine in the comments here. But now, with this in mind, with this said, let us now move into the actual herd online portion of this. So um, Agnes shared with me three uh, links um, that, that she came across. Let me share them with you. Um, this was the first one. Um, it's an, an article from 1992. I believe it's in Italian, which is why there's no link here that says like you know see the full article or anything like that so we only have the abstract and the abstract which is kind of the summary says the following the thalamus has been shown to play a primary role in organization of the wake sleep rhythm this was confirmed by experimental findings in which an atalamic cat or in which atalamic cats displayed severe and persistent insomnia 
And, you know, right there, it was clear to me that there was a huge amount of confusion going on right there because the cat cannot have insomnia. <laughs> like, it, it, a cat just cannot have insomnia. It's impossible for a cat to have insomnia because the cat cannot think about its own emotions. The cat cannot think about its thoughts. And insomnia happens when we are afraid of not sleeping. Insomnia describes a struggle, difficulty. Insomnia is, I can't fall asleep. What's wrong with me? Why can't I sleep? It, it requires, a, a, only a sentient being can have insomnia. Now a cat, of course, can have disrupted sleep. You know, uh, a cat in which you remove a part of the brain, of course, you know, can have a sleep pattern that looks different from a cat that has an intact brain, but that has nothing to do with insomnia. And I think this is so helpful because when we start to think, oh, you know, I need to, you know, something is wrong with my thalamus. That's why I'm not sleeping. Then, then we can automatically see that, oh, no, it's these type of thoughts that create a struggle for me. This cat or these cats without uh, a thalamus, I don't think have any struggle whatsoever. You know, their sleep, uh, sleep pattern may be different than other cats, but there's no internal struggle. There is no suffering, which actually segues nicely into the second article that I took a look at. And I hope I'll pick the right one. Which one was it? I think it was this one. Yeah. This is a review article that is from Frontiers of Neuroscience from 2020. <clears throat> and um, it's a review article. And we won't we'll not spend much time here because review article, very difficult to do heard online episode on because you'd have to you know, spend hours on you know, looking at all the, you know, all the, the, the articles that make up the review article. But there's nonetheless something really interesting here. The abstract starts with the following. Disruptions of sleep and circadian rhythms are amongst the most debilitating symptoms in patients with neurodegenerative diseases. When I read that, I was kind of automatically, immediately sort of like in a questioning state of mind. Because when I used to work as a sleep doctor, I had patients with Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and they didn't seem to have any struggle whatsoever when it came to their sleep, meaning it was maybe, um, you know, inconvenient for the caregivers that their sleep pattern was not uh, predictable or, uh, you know, uh, the same as had been before. But when, when, a, when a human being has uh, these really terrible conditions and they're, they're losing the ability to think and the, their whole, like, it's, it's very difficult to, I, I, would, I would imagine that having one of these conditions is similar to being like, you know, six month old, like the way we experience the world is probably very different. So this sentence to me struck me as like really questionable, like how do we even know that? And interesting enough, like I just came across a sentence that I have to share with you uh, and it's here. Proper assessment of disturbed sleep in Alzheimer's disease necessitate the caregivers being interviewed as patients may not be aware of these sleep disturbances. And I was like, how in the world can we combine these two things? Like, how can, you, how can we on one hand say that sleep disturbances are, you know, of the one of the most debilitating symptoms of, for example, Alzheimer's disease, and then at the same time say, but the patients weren't even aware of them. So we had to ask the caregivers how debilitating that was. Then it's, the question is like, oh, it's debil debilitating to whom, you know? 
and, and again, this highlights that just as, you know, this may sound terrible, like making this connection, but I think still, hopefully it makes sense to you. Like the cat has no suffering at all, even if it doesn't have a thalamus, right? And somebody who has like a significant neurodegenerative condition whereby their thought process, their, their, their brain function is severely impacted is also not struggling. It doesn't have insomnia. It doesn't have a struggle with sleep, you know? And that's really what we're afraid of, you know? We're, we may think that I'm afraid that I won't sleep, but if that didn't affect us emotionally, we wouldn't have any struggle. We wouldn't even be afraid of it. So what we're really afraid of is how we will feel, you know? And um, seeing this can be really helpful because then we see like, it's it's really all about how we think about things and not exactly how we sleep. That's really not what matters. And then finally, mm, let's take a look at the last uh, the last one. Oh yeah, this was this one. Um, and we can see that the, the theme here is thalamus. I think Agnes probably uh, did some research on thalamus and that's what happened. So this is an article called Sleep and Cognitive Abnormalities in Acute Minor Thalamic Infarction. So this group from uh, China, yeah, a Chinese group, had looked into um, a set of patients who had a stroke uh, in the thalamus and compared them with people who didn't in the, in the about say, in group and looking at sleep in particular. Um, so we'll, we can, uh, yeah, we'll just go to kind of the results section, I think. Uh, or actually a little bit more on the, uh, the you know, the how they conducted this. So th basically um, uh, in this particular hospital, uh, they identified uh, patients who had a, stroke in the thalamus and then during their stay in the hospital uh, i think it was actually in a, i don't know if it was the intensive i don't think it was the intensive care unit but, but in the stroke unit they did a a, a um a eeg like a polysonogram uh, so they got eeg data from these patients 14 days after having been admitted for a stroke and they compare that with uh, people who you know just random people who had not had a stroke right and what did they find? Well, uh, we'll take a look at the data uh, right here. So this is the two groups, healthy controls. There were 12 of them. They were about 62 years old. And the patients uh, with minor thalamic infarction, they were 27, uh, about 61 years old. And here's the thing. This is an important thing to take note of, is that 27 patients underwent the study you know, initially after 14 days, 14 days after being admitted. But only six, only six out of 27 completed the follow-up at 90 days. And when I read that, I'm like, okay, why did the vast majority not complete like the second study? To me, it sounds like they were probably doing fine. You know, who wants to have another sleep study when, you know, you're, you're doing better already and things are normalizing for you. So that's something that I think is take, worth taking note of. Now, what did they find? So they found the following that in the 14 days after a stroke and being admitted to the hospital and all that, what that entails, and while doing a sleep study in the hospital, the total sleep time was 382 minutes, six hours and 20 minutes. And if you compare that to the controls, their sleep time was 424 minutes, which, you know, so we can see that somebody who had a stroke and all that entails and is in a hospital slept 
40 minutes less. That's what happened. And how surprising is that, right? Who would sleep just as they do at home when they're in a hospital and just had a stroke, right? How is that surprising to anybody? Moreover, what surprises me is that how who are these controls to sleep like an hour more than uh, you know than what would what, what we typically see when we do EEGs? In fact, the the fourteen like the the patients who had a stroke had a pretty typical sleep duration uh, when you you know when compared to like big studies on sleep duration with objective data, and so. Uh, yeah, and then they they did see even in this study they, they saw that you know the total sleep time increased you know uh, after ninety days after the stroke. But again, most patients in this group fell out uh, of the study. So to me, the conclusion of this this study becomes something like I, 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 to me it's like doubtful that this even necessarily has anything to do with the thalamus. If somebody had a stroke in any other part of the brain or somebody had a heart attack or something else that necessitated them to be hospitalized for 14 days and you did a sleep study, surely you would, you, you would see that sleep was different than uh, in somebody who didn't have a heart attack, a stroke or anything else. And I don't think that's strange at all. That's just sleep disruption. You know, that's just sleep disruption. Many, many things can disrupt our sleep. But again, that does not lead to an ongoing struggle, emotional struggle that we call insomnia. That has to do with how we think about things. So yeah, Agnes, I hope this was helpful uh, for you, this, this little review. And um, to everyone else as well, of course, uh, especially if you've been you know, uh, worried about the thalamus and insomnia. So I'll conclude there. Uh, as always, let me know in the comment section what you, what you thought and look forward to having you back real soon. Until then, bye for now.